You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. This episode is dedicated to the late Ross Langmead. Uh, who was a lecturer at Whitley College, where I'm finishing my master's, and it discusses his eco-theology. It's from a paper I wrote for the Australian Association of Mission Studies, a journal in 2016. I was first introduced to the work of Ross Langmead when completing an exit thesis for my undergraduate degree in theology on eco-missiology and the Book of Romans. Ross was very helpful and provided me with some papers he had written. This work was influential in shaping my thesis and a paper that I wrote later on based on it. Uh, This episode is both a summary of some of Ross's writings on ecotheology and an engagement with it from a quote-unquote budding ecotheologian following in his footsteps, that is me. In a paper he presented to the Baptist Today conference in 2005, Ross laid out five principles of mission and discipleship from an ecological perspective. He identifies ecological mission as having, uh, as firstly, flowing from ecotheology Secondly, that it's all about reconciliation. Thirdly, that it's living out a different vision. Fourthly, that it's discipleship in community. And fifthly, involves reflective and active eco-praxis. We'll deal with each of these ideas in turn, and noting that uh, in the short time I've got, I can hardly present an exhaustive treatment of Ross's eco-missiology. Firstly, eco-theology. As mission flows from theology, so eco-mission flows from eco-theology. Ross defines eco-theology as, quote, a way of doing theology, method, as well as a type of theology, content, and rightly emerges from an environmental commitment, location, end quote. Hence, eco-theology provides an ecological lens on theology, deals particularly with ecological issues, and should represent a commitment to the local, that is, it's an incarnational or a contextualized theology. As Australian ecotheologian uh, Clive Eyre comments, ecotheology, quote, sets theology in dialogue with contemporary ecology, end quote, and is both practical and a faith issue. However, as Ross observes, this faith is not reductionistic, dualistic, individualized, and privatized form of the gospel, but deals with reconciliation beyond the individual. Several key ideas form Ross's ecotheology. The first is that, quote, God is intimately involved in creation as the creative expression of God's greatness, end quote, and, quote, all of creation is God's self-expression, end quote. Langmead notes that the stress on the imminence of God forms a correction to the often overemphasis on transcendence found in evangelicalism. He identifies this stress on divine imminence as panentheism, 
the view that creation is somehow in God, while God is more than creation. This aligns with Paul's use of Greek poetry in Athens, uh, in Acts 17.28, which reads in the NASB, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your poets have said, for we also are his children. Now, panentheism is to be distinguished from pantheism, where God is all, and all is God. And Ross sees panentheism as orthodox, whereas pantheism is not. Panentheism is then God, quote, not remaining fully transcendent, but indwelling creation and becoming embodied in it, particularly in the life of humanity. End quote. This panentheistic immanence may be understood pneumatologically. The spirit is, quote, God at work in the world, end quote. It is the spirit who hovered over the waters in Genesis 1, who gave life to humanity, Genesis 2, 7, and who was eschatologically poured on all humanity, bringing also ecological harmony. That's in Joel 2, 21-29. God's presence through the Spirit in all of creation both sustains it and makes it sacred. We may even speak of creation as being sacramental in nature. This pneumatological eminence may also be expressed in Trinitarian terms. Uh, Langmead follows, uh, Ross follows Maltman, Jürgen Maltman, in thinking about the relationship between God and the world as reflecting the mutual indwelling and mutual interpenetration of the persons of the Trinity. Another key idea in Ross's ecotheology is that of incarnation. The incarnation is central to his understanding of mission in general, with chapters 1 to 3 of his book, The Word Made Flesh, devoted to the incarnation of Jesus and our incarnational mission. The incarnation is, quote, a divine affirmation of the material universe, end quote. Ross feels that this understanding is now well grasped by much of evangelicalism, and a prophetic voice is required both to change attitudes theologically and encourage engagement with the natural world. To incarnate means literally to enflesh or take flesh. The word became flesh, uh, John 1.14, for example. The incarnation is specifically, quote, the event in which, for the salvation of the world, and without ceasing to be fully divine, God became fully human uniquely in Jesus Christ. End quote. A more metaphorical use of the idea, usage of the idea of incarnation is the idea of an incarnating dynamic. This refers not to the literal enfleshment of God, but to the continued self-communication through the material universe and historical events. This becoming flesh means that becoming human, uh, where, quote, God's nature is revealed within the sphere of history in Jesus Christ. Beyond this, the incarnation also demonstrates that God infinitely values the whole of creation. The word becomes flesh and this act of self-embodiment, something unique to God, quote, sanctifies everything with which humanity is united in interdependence, end quote. A truly cosmic understanding of history demonstrates this means everything from the Big Bang onwards. A third concept in ecotheology is the idea of humans embedded in creation. Ross is careful both to identify humans as part of creation, as well as being unique among God's creatures. Interestingly, he observes that one of the problems of evangelicalism is that divine transcendence is often overemphasized at the expense of imminence but doesn't reflect on how this is mirrored in the tendency for some Christians to view themselves in exactly the same way, 
that is, we transcend nature. However, as the second creation account informs us, or the garden narrative, we are profoundly connected to creation. Adam, the representative human being, was made from the Adamar, or soil. Another way of saying uh, it is that we humans come from the humus. Humanity is, quote, not materially separate from creation, but consti constituted in relationship with it, end quote. Second aspect, reconciliation. Mission is about reconciliation, the mending of broken relationships. Ecological mission recognises that reconciliation occurs at all levels, not just between humans and God. The broken relationships that require mending are human-God, human-human, and human-non-human. So look at the curses in Genesis 3. This understanding challenges evangelical views of the gospel that, quote, are almost exclusively centred on the personal salvation of humans, end quote, because it recognises that, quote, such an exclusively anthropocentric view of salvation neglects the cosmos, end quote. Langmead takes seriously two key Pauline texts into account in developing a more cosmologically uh, inclusive soteriology, or soteriology being a um, theology of salvation. Firstly, Romans 8 speaks of the whole of creation longing for full redemption. Ross believes that the usual full redemption framework of much evangelical theology pushes to the background the idea of ongoing creation and new creation. We must instead emphasize that while sin is a uniquely human phenomenon, the dynamics of sin affect the whole of creation. And environmental degradation is an example of the what he calls the energies of sin. Romans 8 nicely illustrates this idea that creation groans due to the energies of human sin and awaits its own redemption. I'll return to this idea a bit later. The second text is Colossians 1, 15-20. Sin distorts relationships at all levels, and hence God's shalom, or peace, means salvation at all of these levels. In Colossians 1, Christ is presented as the cosmic Christ who is the principle of coherence in the cosmos, as well as the one who reconciles all things to God. Paul uses the phrase all things, tarpanta in the Greek, several times in this passage, as well as the merism, that is the all-inclusive phrase, on earth and in heaven. Reading this idea of reconciliation alongside those more anthropocentric texts like 2 Corinthians 5 provides us with a basis for a more inclusive sense of mission. Thirdly, living out a different vision. New ideas require a new paradigm within which to operate. Langmead calls for an eco-spirituality, a whole new way of seeing which invites us to experience God in creation and in our bodies. This means taking our physicality seriously, as well as our relationship to the physical, our situatedness in particular contexts. Eco-spirituality can be a challenge to evangelicals who are concerned about syncretism. The Hebrew Bible does contain a strong warning against syncretism, for example, with Baalism in 1 Kings 17 to 18. However, Ross sees evangelical concerns as more sociological than theological. He suggests that instead of a fortress mentality, out of fear of sliding into New Age thinking, we should be looking for common ground with environmentalists. Mission is about building bridges. 
and eco-spirituality is able to deal with these concerns, at least in part because it dismantles unnecessary dualisms. Christianity has inherited from Hellenistic philosophy. The adoption of dualisms leads to a superior-inferior construction. Here we see all sorts of ways in which Christianity has been oppressive, identifying the West, West, Western Christian tradition as spirit, reason, male and mind, versus matter, nature, female and the body, with all of the latter denigrated in some fashion. Eco-spirituality seeks to address these dualisms appropriately. As noted earlier, Ross recognises that eco-theology is a method, and this method will not always gel well with the traditional logocentrism of Western Christianity. That's the, the, the word focus. And there's a joke that runs that in an evangelical um, trinity is the Father, Son, and the Holy Scriptures. A bit cruel, but sometimes accurate. Eco-spirituality springs from a mystical eco-theology that is artistic, poetic, and imaginative. Note, uh, not that imagination leaps free from the narrative of scripture, but it allows us to transcend the purely rational and takes us into the effective and transcendent. We are to see the world as charged with the grandeur of God and recognize that our theological frameworks are partial and tentative. In other words, have a bit of humility. Next, mission is discipleship in community. Mission is discipleship, always discipleship in community. Uh, this Ross draws from uh, the Anabaptist tradition. He described Anabaptists as, quote, gripped by the concept of incarnational mission arising from discipleship, end quote. For Anabaptists, mission is incarnational in that it is a matter of taking Jesus as a pattern for life and hence in living in solidarity with Christ making visible this pattern to the world in the incarnation of the word, the, quote, good news of the kingdom, uh, uh, the fact that, quote, the good news of the kingdom came in the person of Jesus, who embodied all he proclaimed, end quote. Hence, incarnation is both the subject and the methodology of the gospel, for it is both the event in which salvation is accomplished and the way in which this salvation is, um, is accomplished. This means for us that we can use incarnational in an adjectival sense to identify the congruence of message and method. Now, this whole idea of incarnational mission uh, makes some conservative Christians somewhat um, uh, a little bit worried. They don't like the use of that language necessarily, but I think it's useful. If we are to be truly to be disciples, then we continue the mission of Jesus corporately and hence incarnationally. Incarnational mission affirms the imminence of God and, quote, will affirm creation, the material world, culture, and the value of humanity, end quote. We are reminded that creation is good and that we are to work for the transformation of both culture and creation, not our separation from it. You can hear him really hitting that evangelical dualism on the head. Such an incarnational approach may think globally but act locally, to coin a phrase, we start inward and move outward, thinking about how our own decisions affect the world around us, and then further afield through our shared global ecosystem and economy, which both forms part of the oikos, or household, um, about which eco-mission uh, is addressed. 
And indeed, remember that oikos is the root of the words uh, ecology and economy. And so eco-mission obviously has to be um, interested in both. Now, Ross sees a connection between local and larger scale action. Practicing welfare should lead us to seek justice for others. For example, giving to charity should lead to a desire to see greater equality built into our economic systems. Likewise, ecological responsibilities such as recycling or picking up rubbish should lead to environmental advocacy. This kind of advocacy is also known as eco-justice and recognises that in a fully connected world, all justice is now ecological. There can be times... Uh, can be at times a tension between issues of poverty and environmental concern. However, in the short term, if not the longer term, these issues are connected. For example, it is recognised that there are millions whose quality of life would be greatly improved if they were provided with electricity. However, if it is the ch current cheapest option, and this is arguable, coal is not the best way forward. Its adoption is ultimately unjust because of both short term, that is air quality, and longer term, global warming consequences. Traditional Christian advocacy for the poor, therefore, cannot be separated from environmental advocacy. Likewise, cutting of greenhouse gas emissions in the West is an eco-justice issue, since those in developing nations often experience the impacts of climate change in a manner disproportional to their contribution to emissions. And I'll leave it there, and we'll come back um, to the latter points in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back. Continuing through Ross Langmead's um, eco-missiology. Next, eco-praxis, reflection and action. Ross defines eco-praxis as a reflective form of action that takes seriously the social, economic and environmental costs of various policies. So it's inherently political. There's, there's no avoiding the gospel and has political implications. Ecology is the interconnection of reflection and action. And hence, so must be our eco-praxis. We cannot preach God as creator and redeemer of creation without being committed to the tending and defense of that creation. This will clearly affect any missionary work, and Ross notes that the past hypocrisy in this regard of Western missionaries. In many cultures, there is a direct connection between land and identity. Dispossession of land, forbidding the use of indigenous languages, which encode knowledge of land, and other forms of cultural suppression are all tied to Western ideas of progress, in which Western Christians have at times been duplicitous. As Langmaid urges, we need to put our money not into short-term solutions, which are economically productive but ecologically disastrous, or support programs that insist on people moving from subsistence farming to cash crops, with the net result of them starving. Missionaries and development organisations must be eco-missionaries and eco-profits, speaking truth to power and encouraging development into sustainable ways of supporting local economies and the ecologies into which they are embedded. Given that a more inclusive idea of reconciliation includes creation, Ross sees eco-theology as a form of liberation theology, where instead of the poor of the earth, we see mission to and liberation of the poor earth. 
This echoes nicely the imagery of Romans 8. We are now to express solidarity with the earth itself and the non-human creation. It is often the case that the poor of the earth uh, subsist on poor earth, earth often made poor by Western economics. Mission must therefore occur in the midst of ecological praxis. I want to now briefly reflect upon and interact with Ross's contribution to eco-missiology by addressing his five areas of ecological discipleship. Firstly, creation as temple. Ross believes that the kind of theism that underlies much eco-theology is panentheism, and that this is within the bounds of orthodoxy. Certainly, panentheism attempts to move beyond the overemphasis on transcendence of much classical theism. The idea of the perichoretic trinity attempts to address how we move and have our being in God. Perichoresis describes the way in which the three persons of the trinity exist in one another, applying equally to all three persons. Such an understanding is built upon a Johannine foundation, so John 14, for example. Our concerns about panentheism tending to pantheism is avoided as perichoresis preserves the creator-creature distinction because it is unintelligible in respect of natural objects. That is, physical objects cannot fully cohere in each other, as members of the Trinity can. This perichoretic Trinity is then seen as the model in which God relates the creation. God creates something other than God's self, but out of God's defining character, that is, love. Just as each person of the Trinity leaves room for the other, so God leaves room for creation to be other. Just as within the Trinity each person co-inheres in the other, so we are in God, and God is imminent in the creation. Recent Hebrew Bible scholarship has shown divine imminence to be part of biblical creation theology. So, for example, John Walton in his book The Lost World of Genesis 1, uh, he's shown that creation is a temple. There is a clear, ling clear linguistic connections between God finishing the work of creation in Genesis 2 and Moses finishing the work on the tabernacle in Exodus 39 and the surrounding court in Exodus 40. Hence, creation itself is God's temple, uh, where rest implies, that's the seventh day Sabbath rest, doesn't imply passivity, but the taking up of divine rule. This localization of the divine or becoming imminent is always an act of condescension, insofar as the whole of creation, let alone a temple, uh, could not fully contain the transcendent God. You see that in the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. We might then say that God has in some sense always been incarnating himself, or God's self, and yet it is clear that this too has always meant often uh, to be specifically through human beings as the image of God. Australian theologian Rick Watts notes that the monotheistic anthropology of Genesis 1 mirrors the understanding of human beings in the ancient Near East, notwithstanding uh, some important differences where humans are installed as the divine image to represent God in the temple cosmos. This may cause concerns uh, among some that it is merely a redressed form of anthropocentrism. However, we cannot avoid our divine calling. Yet eco-theology must recognise three centres in Genesis 1. Firstly, and most importantly, eco-theology is theocentric in that creation exists for God to indwell. Eco-theology is also ecocentric in that while creation is demythologized, so, you know, for example, the moon is a light in the sky to rule the night and not a Chaldean god, it is at the same time sacralized. And finally, eco-theology is also anthropocentric because human beings incarnate God to the rest of creation and serve God by caring for it. 
Lastly, in considering Ross's treatment of Romans 8 and the issue of new creation, I want to make a clarifying point. Ross rightly notes that the full redemption narrative often sidelines the creation. We might say that it makes it a backdrop, as if, uh, as it were to the great theodrama, just as Newton made space and time backdrops to physics. However, Ross doesn't uh, comment on how uh, much of Paul explodes this idea of creation as backdrop, as Einstein did to Newton. The theodrama of Romans 8 does not merely include creation or sidelined humility, uh, humanity, sorry, but integrates the future of both human and non-human. Uh, Tom Wright suggests that Exodus language is used for both human and non-human longing for redemption in Romans 8. The future of the creation involves the revealing of the children of God um, in the resurrection. The groaning of creation relates to its present suffering under human misrule, but also in labour pains for the giving up of the dead in resurrection. Rather than backdrop, creation is a central player in the drama. Reconciliation with creation means reconciliation with first peoples. Ross identifies reconciliation as mission uh, central to all mission. We are reconciled to God through his love for us in Romans 5 and through the work of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. This includes in international peacemaking, reconciliation between different Christian traditions and between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples. Or maybe conciliation is more appropriate. More can be made of the link between this last consideration and eco-mission in the Australian context. Ross notes that the European, quote, sky god was, quote, not well integrated with the god who is, was imminent in the landscape, end quote. If we're going to feel at home in the so-called great outdoors, or more particularly in country, as Aboriginal people call it, we must not make the mistake of our forebearers in emphasising transcendence over imminence. Ross presents us with a challenge, quote, to find where in the Australian experience God is present and to make the connections with the life-giving, transforming spirit of Jesus Christ, end quote. Surely the most authentic way to achieve this and reconciliation with the First Peoples is through the eyes of Aboriginal people, in particular Aboriginal Christians. I began to explore this possibility in a couple of places, following the footsteps and listening to others such as Norman Harbel and the Rainbow Spirit Elders. That's one volume, and there's lots of others now um, after, since I've written this piece. The Dreaming is an all-encapsulating body of truths, both law, L-A-W, and law, L-O-R-E, that represents a sacramental theology. Aboriginal Christian elders believed that God was already making God's self known through the Spirit before Europeans arrived with the Gospel, invoking Hebrews 1.1. There are close parallels uh, with Aboriginal ideas of God speaking through land and the creation temple ideas of Genesis 1, as I talked about earlier. In particular, there are parallels between the connection uh, between land, earth, and humans taken from the earth to care for it, and the concept of belonging to country and being its custodians. Learning from Aboriginal theology and land management should accompany all legal efforts to finally do away with the terra nullius that still underlies certain attitudes uh, towards country as seen in mining rights versus sacred sites, for example. And I wrote this in 2016, and it's still very relevant as we see sacred sites destroyed. In practical terms, Christians can not only support uh, Indigenous Australians politically, and by this I include activism such as protests, but also by learning to see country through their eyes. <laughs> a difficult task, but uh, we should be willing pupils. 
This is not an on-demand thing, as if Europeans can at once ask uh, First Nations peoples to, uh, to perform for us. As Eugene Cho warns, quote, without commitment to genuine relationships, people become projects, end quote. Building relationships takes time, but we must be willing to make the time and wait on uh, Indigenous time. There are other options for Christians to explore and gain understanding, uh, and there are various activities you can engage in, such as uh, nature walks and personalised walks are available to, to try and get that experience. Greening the faith and faith in the green. In terms of developing an eco-spirituality, we need to avoid idolatry and syncretism on one hand, while still engaging in an incarnational way with the green movement in a positive manner. In Romans 1, Paul judges the idolatry of the nations as denying what he claims as a plainly evident natural theology. In Romans 2, this is extended to wayward Israel, whose own idolatry blasphemed God's name amongst the nations. That's verse 24. And yet while Paul could express such outrage, he could also use people's, quote, God consciousness as a bridge to dialogue. So, for example, in Acts 17, Luke narrates Paul as being distressed at Greek idolatry and yet being able to turn a discussion of their incomplete understanding into a discussion about Jesus. So it's Jesus-centered. It is in this context that he can use the language of the day, including Greek poets. This provides us with a missiological method as well as providing a caution. The missiological method is Paul's willingness to engage in dialogue and contextualize his language, recognizing how people are created to seek after God and how the human religious impulse demonstrates this uh, impossible tensions with Romans 3, 9 to 11, maybe. An issue for another time. And yet the caution in his adoption of such language and yet the caution in his, use, uh, in his adoption of such language and the need to be tentative in the way in which pantheism, panentheism builds a doctrine um, on one verse taken from such a dialogue. So, you know, it, it's, it's out there a little bit, but it's, uh, I think, a useful method and an idea to pursue. Finally, ecopraxis, the whole body of Christ. Late, uh, Ross sensibly notes that ecopraxis needs to be informed by a variety of fields. What is underdeveloped is how this looks practically. Uh, and I've taken out an example from, from this, but think of organisations like Arosha as being a prime example where there's a, an attempt to integrate this. However, given discipleship is conducted in community, so is ecopraxis informed. One might say that eco-mission is too important to be left to eco-missiologists, but belongs also to climate scientists, soil scientists, policy makers, economists, etc. And some churches contain a number of these. Eco-praxis is a function of the whole body, making the most of expertise not just from the ordained or theologically trained, as much as everyone should know their Bible well, but from the whole body of Christ. Eco-prophets may receive their calling before being theologically trained, and hence we train the called and not vice versa. Incarnational missions should never be hierarchical and institutional, but prophetic, dynamic, organic, and respecting the priesthood of all believers. So to sum up, Rosslang Mead has left us a valuable legacy in the fields of eco-theology, eco-missiology, and eco-spirituality. In trying to bring evangelical theology to bear on such fields, he was both challenging and generous, seeking to stay within the bounds of what many would consider orthodox, 
but also stretching both their doctrine and praxis. Ecomissiology is still a young field, and its development is very important both in terms of the urgency of the state of the planet and the need for the church to engage more with issues that matter. As scientists have often stated, progress is only made on the back of giants. And it's up to us to continue to build upon the back of this giant, the late Ross Langmaid, who was taken to be with his teacher too early for the rest of us. He's certainly been influential in my thinking. So hopefully uh, that was interesting to you. You can find the original paper on the Australian Association uh, Emission Studies website, I believe, uh, the PDF's available, or you can go to uh, myacademia.edu page. So once more, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.